morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, March 17th, we are studying John chapter 14, verses 15 to 21. In today's text, Jesus' teaching in the upper room on Monday, Thursday, turns toward the work of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus promises he will send to his disciples. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me back to study the Word of God with you today. As we get started today, Pastor Andrews, give us some context. We're in the middle of John 14 today. What should we know about John's Gospel and any of the surrounding context that will help us with our verses today? Well, John's Gospel, just a quick note on it, it's written so so much later than the others. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, I don't know if I, I'm comfortable pinning them down exact years, but somewhere in the maybe early 50s is when they were written. John's writing probably early 90s. And so the church has had the three synoptic gospels, same gospels, for over a generation's time. And John then, as he writes and records and reflects on some of the things that he got to bear witness to as a disciple of Christ, he gets to share some stories that the others didn't share. And so you think of the upper room and Maundy Thursday and the Last Supper and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, yeah, sure, they share a couple of things and conversations from that dinner. But we get to dig deeper with John uh, and and see so many more things that happened that very night. Hmm. Yeah, we, we've been talking recently that, you know, we are here at the end in the sense that it is Monday, Thursday, and we know that the next day is the day in which our Lord was crucified. And yet, even though we're at the end, we're in John 14, and the crucifixion's not going to happen until chapter 19. John gives us so much information as to what Jesus said and taught on Monday, Thursday to his disciples. What has he been teaching up to this point? You know, get us up to speed with what Jesus has been teaching as we, we prepare to look at our verses for today. So we've had the picture of foot washing, the idea of servanthood that as we know, Christ famously said, he came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, as we see in the Synoptic Gospels. The foot washing illustrates that to his disciples very clearly. He's willing to do the dirty, lowly servant's job. He's willing to, as we know, lay down his life, even for us. Um, he's gone into the new commandment, which he identifies this new commandment as the the idea that we would love one another as he has loved us. The emphasis being on the last part. We've been told all the way back in the Old Testament to love each other, but now the new part is we've gotten to see what that love looks like, hmm. and we get to move forward in that. He's talked about 
betrayal and denial, both for Judas and Peter. They've had their conversation now about uh, Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can can come to the Father except through him. He said that he's going to prepare a place for us, talking about paradise, the new heaven, the new earth, and that like a groom would leave and go to take his wife to the new home he's prepared for her, so he's going to come and take us to be with him there as well. So we turn now to Jesus' words in John 14, beginning at verse 15. This is Jesus speaking. Here is the text. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That is our text for today. That's John 14, verses 15 to 21. Pastor Andrews, let's start with that first verse of ours, verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Help us to understand these words of Jesus. I think that that phrase probably initially strikes Lutherans as odd and maybe law-centered. We're... Mm -hmm. We're not used to talking in this kind of way about Jesus and about what he has said. But at the same time, if we we slow down and look at it, his words here aren't unfair. They're not unjust. Jesus is our king, and we are his servants. We are his people. If a people says that they love their king and their king gives them a command to do and they don't do it, we would fairly question whether they actually love their king or not. Hmm. And what kingdom would the king just let that slide? Christ is our king. And so he gives us things to do. He gives us instructions. And we see at the end of Matthew's gospel that we're to take those commands and share them with everybody else too. Um, Hmm. So he, he loves us which is one of the main focuses that we see throughout John's writings. And we we get to love him. Hmm. Right. So, I mean, you said these, these words, sometimes they strike us with a, a law focus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It, maybe... I don't know. Sometimes we we react the wrong way, perhaps, to that. Certainly, there there is a, a nature in which this is a command of Jesus. This is something we should do. I think I think yet at the same time to hear these words more fully is helpful. What does it mean to to well? There's probably a couple things we can talk about. What does it mean to keep my commandments? And what are the commandments of Jesus? Are they commandments? as opposed to promises, or is it maybe a little more broad than that? I don't know. Take us into some of those things, Pastor Andrews. Sure. I think my initial response, as you were talking there, 
part of our squeamishness might be a good way to say it in response to something like this phrase is is because we've often been uncomfortable with the third use of the law uh, that Jesus would would forgive us, set us free from sin, but that we've not just been set free to do whatever it is that my heart desires. Uh, we've been set free to be part of God's kingdom, to be one of his people, that, that we're a family now. There's work to be done because we're in the family. So I think that's a connection and and hopefully helpful for people to ponder. In terms of keeping, keeping could be a good word to kind of explore. I think we normally hear the phrase, keep my commandments as do my commandments. Mm-hmm. And there's a probably a fairness to that. Another way to imagine the word keep, though, is also guard. Um, that you're keeping something, you're guarding it. And so we would not let Christ's commandments, we wouldn't let his words just disappear or or be meaningless to us. So even though I fail to always perfectly obey the commands of Jesus Christ, I still value them. I still hold them up to my family as being worthy of, of respect and to know that the Lord has given them and thus they are good. Yeah, I think one of the other things that I find helpful is I think about John's gospel in particular and the way that that Jesus speaks in John's gospel and the way that John tends to organize his material is to to keep what John or what Jesus says here in John 14 in the context of things that we haven't yet heard we haven't yet heard Jesus say reading through John one verse one chapter at a time. You know, things like, and, and you've kind of, you've hinted the, at this already that yes, we're talking about if you love me, but we want to keep that in the context of the fact that Jesus loves us first. I mean, we, we think about first John that we love because he first loved us. I'm thinking for a particular into chapter 15 right now, where Jesus will speak the, the last I am statement that we get in John's gospel. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So again, although we haven't yet heard that as we've been reading through this chronologically here on Sharper Iron, I think that context is critically important to understanding what Jesus is talking about here. He's not, he's not somehow, somehow suddenly preaching that you know this is dependent upon you and me somehow to save ourselves or to prove our love for Jesus apart from something that that you know, he hasn't done or something like that. He's, his love still remains primary. And it's only when we are in him, abiding in him and in his word, that Jesus' words here in, in John 14, 15, even become something we can consider at all. Agreed. And I think as we unpack the Holy Spirit in our conversation together today, that'll come out. I mean, if you love me, in order to love Jesus, we have to have the spirit already dwelling within us. Uh, we're already part of the family at that point. Mm. All right. So if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, uh, Pastor Andrews, did you, I know you mentioned this previously, the new commandment that Jesus gives in verse 13. How does how does that, the, the new commandment, love one another, how does that factor into what Jesus is saying here? The mandatum novum, right? The I believe that's the Latin phrase for it, where we get our Maundy word in English for that gives us the name for the day. That mandatum, that new mandate, is to love one another 
as he has loved us. And we see that, uh, specifically, I guess, chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. We see it again. You reference chapter 15 ahead. He said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And he goes into talking about how greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. So keeping it in context here, within the same night, the same conversations Jesus and the disciples are having together, when he says, keep my commandments, that's the one most local uh, to what he's just been saying. So love each other, um, be willing to serve one another, even to the point of death, if if that comes. Right, and as you pointed out already, that this a new commandment, what, what makes it new at this point is the fact that we are about to see Jesus show the fullness of that love, that as he will show us what it means to love. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. That is what Jesus is going to show his disciples and the world in just a few short hours from when he utters these words here in John 14. So if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That comes to us from the one who has loved us first, who has fulfilled that greatest commandment to love us by giving up his life to show us that greatest love of all. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then Jesus continues in verse 16, I will ask the Father And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, into verse 17, even the spirit of truth. So uh, we're we're getting here again, as we saw in yesterday's text, some Trinitarian theology. And yesterday it was primarily Jesus the Son speaking of his relationship with the Father. Today we speak about the Spirit as well. Jesus is going to continue to teach that. So help us into what Jesus is teaching here in verse 16. It's a good thing to identify this as a Trinitarian verse. I know we never see the word Trinity show up in Scripture, but here's all three persons all showing up in the same verse together. And Jesus is, I think, fairly simply just teaching here that he's going to request his Father to send the Spirit to us, and his Father will do it. And Jesus, like he teaches us to pray to the Father, he prays to the Father talking to God. And just as he taught us, God hears our prayer and answers. So the Lord hears his prayer and answers. Hmm. All right. So Jesus is the one who asks the Father. And in response to Jesus' prayer on our behalf, he sends another helper. The The Spirit is referenced particularly in verse 17. So let's let's talk about the, the Trinitarian theology that we get in this verse, which really is throughout this chapter. What do, we, what do we learn about the truth of who God is as the Holy Trinity in this verse? We see that word helper, and in Greek that's the, the paraclete word that I think some of the listeners are probably familiar with. Maybe others would think of the word comforter here. The Spirit who, who comes to aid us, help us. I mean, as we... We process this, we know more from seeing more in Scripture as well. Jesus must ascend in order to send the Holy Spirit to us. But it's not that they're somehow different forms, right? This has been a heresy in the history of the Church. Right. Uh, blanking on what that one was called, 
but I, I think and perhaps you're thinking of modalism yeah that's it one god shows up in different modes different modes different forms or faces or masks i think some like to call it so maybe and every analogy falls short but maybe the the picture that might help is to think of the lord the trinity the work of the trinity i'll put it that way as being sort of like a boomerang I've never successfully thrown a boomerang, but I know that when you throw it correctly, it goes out from you. It reaches that point where it then turns on itself and it returns to you. And in the scriptures, we see the father send his son. And then we see, as we go through this text, also the son sending the spirit. Chapter 15 will share that too. And the spirit's job is to, as we see here, help us by pointing us to Jesus, by bringing us to know Christ and him crucified. And then as we come to Christ in that, it's Jesus' job to reconcile us back to the Father again. So it starts with the Father, and it comes full circle back to the Father as we are reconciled to the one who first created us. And even at that, I hesitate because the whole Trinity is involved in the creation account in Genesis one as well. That's right. I mean, you know, this is the the mystery of the Holy Trinity that we worship one God in three persons, three persons in one God, and so we speak the language of Scripture. We confess the truth that Scripture speaks, even if our own minds can't fully wrap themselves around it. We simply confess that truth that God has given us to confess. And we rejoice in what that truth teaches concerning us and our salvation. So here in verse 16, to know that the son asks the father for something on our behalf is a wonderful comfort. And to know that the father answers the prayer of that son by giving the Holy Spirit is another wonderful comfort. One one question, because you, you kind of mentioned it already here in, in the ESV, I will ask the father. So I, that's the son will ask the Father, but then it says, and he will give you another helper. The he there, that's that's the Father who's going to give the helper. But you said Jesus also sends the Spirit, right? I mean, that comes a little more plainly later. It does. And so a couple of spots that are important in that kind of a thought are in, well, still John 15, verse 26, and again in 16, verse 7. So in 15, verse 26, Jesus still speaking, says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And and I think the other verse I was referencing to um, from verse 7 of chapter 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This has, I think, a lot of people assume this is what's behind a significant rift in church history. The The Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church split over a thousand years ago, and the filioque controversy is the term for it, which I think is just the, the phrase and the son in Latin, um, that the, uh, the Nicene Creed would have originally been written so that it only said that the Father sent the Spirit, but that eventually it gets altered to say the Father and the Son, the Spirit proceeds from. Yeah. And the 
as my understanding is, the real struggle and challenge there was that the churches had agreed that they weren't going to change the Nicene Creed, and then the Western churches ended up changing the wording of the Nicene Creed when the Eastern churches weren't even present for the conversation. Um, so I don't know that the Eastern Orthodox churches, whose creed does not say who proceeds from the Son, I don't think that they would take these verses and say that they don't say what we think that they say in English. You can correct me if you if you've heard that differently, but well, I don't I don't know enough about the the doctrine of the Eastern Orthodox Church to to know fully what they what they do or don't believe. I I do know that you are correct that as they speak the Nicene Creed, they do not say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. They would only say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. What they do with a passage like John it, that comes up in John 15, as you mentioned, I'm not sure. And I, I, from what I know of church history, I think you're right that there were there was more than theology going on. There were some political differences having to do not only with what you've mentioned, I think, but also the superiority of the bishop in Rome was a, a part of the the differences that they they were experiencing that led to that great schism in 1054. But this is the the theological background. So how how exactly they talk about it in the Eastern Orthodox Church, I'm not I'm not knowledgeable enough to say, but that is the the difference between the Western Church, which is the tradition that we find ourselves in as Lutherans, and the Eastern Church. And as you said, that's a, a split that goes back well before the Reformation that does stem from passages like this. And as you said, th- these are the passages that we would point to and as the reason we do confess the Nicene Creed as we do, that the Spirit does in fact proceed from the Father and the Son, because that is the way Jesus teaches here in John 14 and 15 and 16. He teaches that quite clearly, I would say, in, in passages that we're talking about. So here in, in John 14, I will ask the Father, Jesus says, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And you you said the word helper, sometimes it, it gets translated comforter, counselor. I think I've seen advocate. It goes back to a, a Greek word, parakletos, or just translated, transliterated into English, paraclete. What What is the help? What is the counsel, the comfort, the advocacy of the Spirit uh, that we need? I want to share my short list and... I invite you to share yours with me, too. It would be fun to hear another pastor's uh, list here. As the question comes up often enough, like, Pastor, what does the Holy Spirit do? Yeah. We we talk so much more about the Father and about Jesus. And I think, again, the, the, the point here is because the Spirit's role is to point us to Christ. So if we're talking about Jesus, the Spirit's in you, uh, dwells in you, and the Spirit's job has been done and is being done. So... The Spirit is not offended if we do not speak of Him. That's right. So yeah, but, no, the, the way that the way that I heard one pastor put it was that the that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit aren't in heaven, sort of like counting envelopes. So who's getting the most prayer mail or something like that? And the the Holy Spirit's not upset if He's not getting His mailbox full or something like that. So you're, I think you're exactly right that that one of the reasons that the you know we we don't always speak about the Holy Spirit specifically is because we're so busy speaking about Jesus, which is what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. Yeah. I mean, so, so tell us about your shortlist, Pastor, Pastor Andrews. My shortlist starts... What does the Spirit do? My shortlist starts with creation of faith. The Holy Spirit is the one responsible for creating faith in me and you and anyone. Um, 
we'll talk about maybe how that's a, a comforting and reassuring thing in evangelism conversations too, maybe. But um, so you've got creation of faith, which comes through water in the word in baptism. And it also comes through, as Paul says in Romans 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes through hearing. So somebody who is able to hear the gospel can believe the good news about Christ, not by their own merit, but because Christ has been given to them by the work of the Spirit. So creation of faith, repentance, that I cannot bring myself to confess my sins. Uh, that sin, sinful nature within me would continue to want to wallow in that sin, uh, like the dog returning to its vomit. It is the Spirit who guides us and aids us to repent that we then, as the word repent means, that we turn, that we would turn away from our sin and turn to Christ. And then, I mean, if we're talking about a third beyond that, the conversation, spiritual growth, uh, the, the idea that the Spirit continues to fill us, encourage us in our daily faith as we, we wake up each morning and there are temptations and battles in front of us, but yet through prayer and through the Word and, and so forth, the Spirit continues to work to, to build us up. Hmm. So creates faith brings to repentance and helps us to grow spiritually. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. I think you know, when I when I talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in, in the shortest way possible, the, the way that I describe his work is that he is the one who makes us holy. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the way Luther speaks in the large catechism, I think, that the, the work of sanctification, as it's sometimes called, this just means that the Holy Spirit makes us holy. And so that's the the shortest way that I know to, to speak of the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who makes us holy. How does he do that? Well, in the in the narrow sense that he, he makes us holy before, I don't know if I'm, uh, in one sense, he makes us holy. I'm not sure if it's in the narrow or the broad sense. I, I'm losing my, my language here. I, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, but in in one sense, so how does he make us holy? He makes us holy by giving us faith in Christ, and in that way we stand before God fully blameless, righteous. I think that's that would be the broad way of speaking about holiness, that I am holy because God makes me so, and he does that through faith in Jesus. In the narrow sense, the more narrow use of them, that would be the work of sanctification, as you were speaking about it, that he he helps me to grow spiritually. He he gives me good works to do, and I begin to do them. So that that is his work of making me holy. He does it by bringing me to faith in Christ, such that I am counted as blameless before God, and he makes me holy also, in the sense that he, he gives me good works, the fruit of the Spirit, this is what he gives me to do. But all of it subsumed under the thought that he makes me holy. That would be, I suppose, my my short list in speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit. I think it fits very well with what the way you would put it, though, Pastor Andrews. Yeah, and that, that making holy, that sanctification process is one of our famous Lutheran now and not yet's, right? It, yeah. it has an immediate reality that you are holy. You are set apart. You are a child of the Lord through baptism and through the spoken word. You're his. You're his son. You're his daughter. Uh, you're his child. And thanks be to God, the devil can't do anything to stop it. Um, yeah. And yet it's also ongoing. As again, the Spirit brings us to repent of our sins, the Spirit 
helps to gather the church together, uh, calling us out of this world and to to meet with one another and to study his word and, and all those sorts of things that are going to be beneficial to us each and every day of life. And that process ultimately, like so many of those now and not yets, is completed when Christ returns on the last day and our bodies are risen from the dead and glorified and we get to live with him forever. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking this morning with Pastor Steve Andrews about John 14. We need to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, March 17th. We're studying John 14, verses 15 to 21 with Pastor Steve Andrews. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus praying to the Father and the Father giving us another helper, the Holy Spirit. Talked about the work of the Holy Spirit in making us holy and bringing us to faith and then giving us good works to do, that broad and narrow senses of, of making us holy, of sanctification. I, I think, you know, of course, when we think about the work of the Holy Spirit, it's always good to recall the way Luther teaches us to confess in the small catechism that he calls, gathers, enlightens, sanctifies, he keeps the whole Christian church on earth. These are also works of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. I think it's also important for us, especially as we read here in John's Gospel, to pay attention to the way Jesus speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit. And here particularly, he is going to be our helper who is with us forever. And Jesus, we've been saying this is the Holy Spirit. Jesus particularly names him here the Spirit of Truth. So I think that would be something else we can confess about the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who gives us truth in the Word of God. Take us into this next verse, 17, that it is the Spirit of Truth whom Jesus will have the Father send. I think this connects so very well as you look at John's gospel. Uh, in John chapter 8, there's the, the contrast with the devil, who is called the father of lies. And we know Jesus, again, saying of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life here in this chapter. We have a God who is true. And anything he says or does is true by its very nature. And Thus, he, I mean, the Spirit is, is the Lord, Trinity, so he is true. And we can trust in him, and we also know that he's going to speak truly to us. So when he points us to Christ, it's not a myth, it's not a lie, he's giving us truth. Mm -hmm. So the Spirit of truth, this is the one whom the Father will send upon the Son's request, 
And Jesus says that the world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. Talk about this reaction of the world to the spirit of truth. The world can't know God. And I mean, that's a, it's an interesting phrase to kind of wrestle with. What does it mean to know? In the Old Testament, to know someone was often a, a way to say that they had had sex together. And without playing with that too much, we then think of marriage. And marriage is an analogy that the Lord uses for his relationship between himself and us, his church, his bride. He uses it frequently in scripture. So to know him is to then be with him, to be his people. And the world's not that. They don't know him. They aren't with him, nor do they want to be. I mean, they're too busy running. They're they're fleeing from his presence. If they if they think they know the Christian God, uh, they see him as a God of wrath or a God that they would have to be accountable to, that they couldn't just have the fun that they want to have with their life. They'd actually have to repent and, and live differently. So the, the world cannot receive the spirit of truth because it neither sees him nor knows him. I think this, just thinking about the narrative of John's gospel, and you see the way that people have reacted to Jesus, particularly the religious leadership, they certainly have not known who Jesus is truly, though they think they see they are in fact blind, as Jesus says in John chapter 9. They, they have not known Jesus truly, and so how could they know the spirit of truth who will come to reveal Jesus, as we'll find out later in this same this same discourse. So it, it makes good sense that the world is not going to receive the spirit of truth because the world neither knows nor sees the spirit. But for the disciples, this is a promise. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Talk about that promise Jesus makes to his disciples there at the end of that verse. I mean, simply put, thanks be to God that he dwells in us, that he is with us. And we know Jesus made the promise before he ascended, I will be with you always to the end of the age, at the end of Matthew. But that he's actually in us is, it's mind-boggling. Can we just mm. <laughs> say it that way? Uh, and again, this goes back to what he's, he does. He creates faith. He strengthens faith to know that the one who has created faith in me in the first place is still with me and in me, that's an encouragement to my own faith that he's going to, to uphold that. He's going to nurture that. Um, and I'm not saying that I don't ever do anything. I can, I can abandon faith. Yes. But he is still holding me in the, in the palm of his hand. And, and again, there's great comfort in that. Hmm. Yeah, and again, to think about the situation in which the disciples hear these words for the first time there on Monday, Thursday, right before their Lord is about to be betrayed and then crucified, you know, a promise like this is precisely what they need, although they don't fully understand it until after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Still, it is a promise that sustains them through those hours in which they see their Lord suffer and die for their sakes, to know that the spirit of truth will come that he will dwell with them and be in them is is certainly a wonderful promise and remains a wonderful promise for us even after 
the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, to know that that this is how God himself dwells with us and dwells in us so that, I mean, so that we have all of his gifts. It is a, a wonderful thing that Jesus says. And I think he, he continues then to build on that in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So here Jesus uses some some picture language is a comparison. He speaks about us not as orphans. What's the what's the image of orphans? How does Jesus make use of that here? Well, an orphan is the one who has lost a father, uh, and oftentimes father and mother is the way we would use it today. But in the ancient world, even just the father, the one who would have provided for the child. And when we think of Jesus, again, we we know the marriage metaphor probably better that he's our groom and we're his bride. But in this sense, Jesus changing the metaphor up a little bit, these disciples, Peter, James, John, and so forth, he's been their head of household for these last three years of his ministry. And they have spent so much time together. They've left their father's businesses to follow him. And as you were just saying, he's now going to be taken from them. He's about to die. And so... He's not going to leave them as orphans, though. That's the promise here of the second coming of Jesus Christ. He is going to return. But in the meantime, they're not abandoned either. In the meantime, they have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be the one who, again, trains them up in the way they should go. Um, as they, they need that, that role model, just to use a, a phrase that we would use in English, who will guide them. And, and nurture them. So when Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, it sounds like he's talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit, and yet also his own very real physical appearance to his disciples after his resurrection. Even after his ascension, they, he's not left them as orphans, he's not left the, us as orphans, but is this pushing us all the way forward even to the return of Christ then? I'd say definitely. Um, this is pointing us to when Christ does come on the last day, and then we get to live with him in his paradise each and every moment of the rest of forever, which is a really weird phrase when you think about it, rest of forever. Never that's ends. Right. The rest of forever. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the, the rest of forever. So so here we have, again, a wonderful promise from Christ that even in his absence, and I don't, I don't that's not even the right word, even in his, even though we cannot see him, in his ascension, yet he has not left us as orphans. He comes to us. He comes to us through his spirit, through the work of his spirit. He comes to us finally on the last day. So talk ab- about the comfort of, of that, to know, again, that we're not alone now, but also that Christ will return on the last day. Talk about the comfort that's there in both of those things. The first one is one that I think we really need to give more, more credit to, as Christians living in the United States right now, loneliness is an epidemic all around us. The world is struggling with loneliness a lot, and the technology that was supposed to bring us closer to each other has only served to further separate us and make us lonelier. But the Christian, you have the good news that you are never alone. When the world is telling you that you are, when the world is telling you no one cares about you, no one is with you, you're by yourself, you're all alone, you're in the dark, it's not true. It's a lie of the devil to discourage, to dissuade, to cause doubt, because Christ is with you. He 
he lives in you. His spirit lives in you. And he is omnipresent, all present, always there. Um, and it's such a beautiful thing to know that we are never alone. Never. Uh, the devil doesn't have that power over us. And then with the second coming, I mean, Christ's return means everything. We are living in the midst of a world filled with brokenness, and not one of us is living even a single day where we don't suffer some sorts of pain from our own sin and the consequences that sin brings in life. And yet a day comes when there will be no more sin. A day comes where our bodies will no longer hurt or ache. A day comes where we will know Christ in the fullest. And all will be perfect and truly holy in ways that we can't even really imagine because everything that we know now is colored by our, our lens of sin that we see it through. So this is a wonderful promise for us to hold on to as Christians that Christ will return on the last day and make all things right and new. Jesus continues in our text, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. Talk again about how the world will not see Jesus anymore, but that stands in contrast to the fact that his disciples will. Right. It seems strange to be able to speak that way, and, and the disciples are a little bit taken aback by it as well. But it's about what that sight is. And Jesus has often used the, the idea of um, sight and hearing in connection to faith. Again, that's usually more of the synoptic gospels. Here we've got seeing and knowing. The world can't see Jesus because the world doesn't think in terms outside of whatever's in front of their face, whatever the day brings. And so they just see physical hard things. And, and the world even then makes their gods that way. You know, the ancient world, they were literal statues that they built. Um, this is my God. I can see him. I can touch him. He's real. There's so much more than just what our senses can know. Um, we see him because he's in us. I do think that there's maybe something to at least point to at the Lord's Supper for the Christian as well, though, that Christ puts his very body and blood before us, and that in that way, we have seen Jesus. Even if it's not in the fullness, we haven't seen the, the resurrected body in its glorified way. We see him, and he is with us as we gather together in his house. Hmm. What about what Jesus promises after that? Because I live, you also will live. It's still uh, incredible to think of this promise. And what this is going to look like, we don't even know really how to speak. But Jesus lives. Jesus rose from the dead. Christ our Lord is risen from the grave. It could not hold him. I love to make that point at pretty much every funeral. I point to the body, and I remind them of that. The grave did not hold Jesus, and because it could not hold him, it cannot hold your father or your husband or your daughter or whoever it is. 
the grave has no power over us. Because Christ lives, we live. 1 Corinthians 15, the, the resurrection chapter, speaks of this so beautifully. Um, we get to live forever. And think of the last day when Christ returns and everyone is raised from the dead. What a sight our cemeteries will be that day. Which, uh, for those who don't know, the word cemetery means dormitory. It's a sleeping place. They're going to wake up. Yeah, what a what a wonderful promise from our Lord Jesus Christ. Because I live, you also will live. That when we when we look at Christ and we see what has happened to him and what he's gone through, what he's done for us, we know that that has been made ours in holy baptism. This is the way Paul teaches us in Romans chapter six that in baptism we were crucified with Christ, we were buried with Christ, and we are raised with Christ. So that because he lives, we also live as well. All that Christ has done has been made ours. And that is a comfort for us right now in this life. And it is a comfort when this life is gone, when we are the ones standing by a graveside to know that just as the grave did not hold Jesus, so the grave will not hold the bodies of those who belong to Jesus, that on the last day they will be given that same life that Jesus has now Thanks be to God for that beautiful promise. In verse 20, Jesus says, and I think this is related, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So this this connection that Jesus has to his Father, which is what he mentions in the first part of this verse, also has implications for the connection that we have with Jesus and the connection he has with us. Uh, this Again, it's, it's typical of the way Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John, but it, it may strike us as a, a bit strange. Help us to understand what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm in my Father, you're in me, I'm in you. Well, I think this, maybe this could be modeled by another church relationship. The, the Wisconsin Synod, uh, Wells, as some people would call them, they ended up breaking off um, relations with the Missouri Synod several decades ago. And one of the issues was that the LCMS had entered fellowship with a another Lutheran church body at the time that the Wells did not believe they could be in fellowship with. And so their argument was, is if you're in fellowship with them and we're in fellowship with you, that means that we're also in fellowship with them. And we can't be. So they were seeing this all as being interconnected, interlocked with itself and each other. And that I don't know if that helps people see this phrase a little bit more here in verse 20. But if Jesus is in the Father, and he's also in us, then, well, we are one with the Father as well, that we are his. Again, maybe family would be the easier way just to talk about it, that the Lord has, as Scripture says, adopted us into his family. He's made us heirs of his kingdom. And so Christ is in us, we're in him. It's a family, familial kind of relationship to each other. Right, and it connects to what Jesus said in verse 19, because I live, you also will live. The The Son has life because the Father has life. And so because of that intimate connection between the Father and the Son, that connection of life. So on that day when we will live resurrected on the last day, we will see precisely this truth that we know now by faith that 
with Christ being in the Father, so we are in him. He is in us. We have his life because we have that connection to him, again, in holy baptism. Now, Jesus concludes our text for today in verse 21. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Some of this sounds very familiar from what we started with this morning, Pastor Andrews. Help us to to what to understand what Jesus is saying here in verse 21. Right. We're right back to keep my commandments. And that's the person who loves Jesus. Hmm. Jesus' role is to point us to the Father. His work is to reconcile us to God the Father. And so if we are in Christ, which is the work of the Spirit to bring us into Christ, then we are also in the Father, whom Christ is in. So it all just coming full circle on itself. We are loved by the Father because we've been reconciled to him. He is our Father, as our Lord Jesus has taught us to pray. So whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And again, you know, maybe this is because of the way that we as Lutherans emphasize, rightly so, the necessary distinction between law and gospel, that we hear a statement like that and we recoil at first because we hear the accusation there. And that is there, but we we shouldn't let that accusation prevent us from hearing the goodness of what Jesus is saying. So to to love Jesus, to know who he is, is to desire his commandments. Why would we why would we desire something else? I mean, thinking about some of the other ways that Jesus has spoken in John's gospel, he's talked about the slavery to sin in John chapter eight. Think about how awful the slavery to sin actually is when Christ opens our eyes to see that and sets us free from that slavery. Why would we desire to live in it anymore? Far, far better, and and it makes far more sense to desire the freedom that Christ has given. And where is that freedom found? But in His commandments. And so, you know, don't let that necessary proper distinction between law and gospel turn us off from the law, but rather allow it to let us see the law for what it really is—the good will of God that he means for our good so that, you know, when we love Christ because of the love he's had for us, certainly we desire his commandments. And that, I think that makes a statement like this from Jesus, you know, click and make sense and we don't recoil against it right away. Yeah, very true. Uh, and maybe another way to think about it too, if Jesus is telling us, this is who the family is, this is what my family does, why would we say we want to be part of that family if we want nothing to do with who that family is and what they do? Right. Um, We've been brought in. It's our family now. And we just, we do what the family does. And what family doesn't want to see its family do well? And so the work of the kingdom that the Lord has given us to do is, is family business. It's to share the good news of Christ with others, to love one another. Why? Why not? Right? Yeah. Yeah. So Jesus says, he who loves me will be loved by my father. There we have again, that, that intimate connection between the father and the son is made manifest in this, in now the relationship between Jesus and the disciple. And I will love him. Jesus says, I will love the one who loves me 
and manifest myself to him. Talk about that last phrase that Jesus uses there. What does it mean that he will manifest himself to the one who loves him? Manifest. Oh, what's that hymn where it shows up a whole bunch of times? God and man made manifest. My daughter, last time we sang that one, she uh, she asked, Daddy, what, what's that mean? <laughs> what's, what's manifest? <laughs> make known. Uh, it's to make known. It's to reveal. So when Jesus says he will manifest himself to us, it means he, he's going to make himself known to us. He's going to reveal himself to us. We get to see him. We get to see our Savior face to face. As Job so famously said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And then he goes on to say that his eyes, not another, so his very eyes, those same eyes he had in his head in the moment, his eyes will get to see God. And this is true for you too. And it's true for me as well. And for my daughter that said that question. Um, we get to see God. And that means we get to be with him. And that again points us back to paradise and the promises of Christ that never end are everlasting. With about a minute left here, Pastor Andrews, help us to wrap things up on the morning. Give us the good news that's ours from this section of John 14. Jesus is about to die. He is going to complete his journey to Jerusalem to the cross where he will be executed for our sin, laying down his life for us because there is no greater love than this. And as he prepares to leave his disciples, he does not leave them alone, but he gives to us the Holy Spirit who creates faith in us, who sets us apart, who makes us holy, who points us to the Lord in all things so that always, we have Christ. And when the day comes that Christ returns, we will get to live with him forevermore because the Spirit has helped to nourish that faith in us all those years. Pastor Steve Andrews is pastor at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 14, verses 15 to 21. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the Gospel of John, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.